You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Thursday, February 1st, 2024. Again, I don't think we're spending enough on public education. Later in the program, we have part two of the latest edition of Prescription for Healthcare, where we welcomed Dr. Michael Hicks, Distinguished Professor of Economics and Business Research and Director of the Center for Business and Economic Research at Ball State University. More in the bottom half of our program. Also coming up in the next half hour, Dark Past, Bright Future, a segment produced by Bring It On's Liz Mitchell, featuring accounts of black history that often go overlooked. But first, your local headlines. At the January 29th meeting of the Bloomington Utilities Service Board meeting, representatives from Blucher Pool Wastewater Treatment Plant requested approval for multiple agenda items pertaining to facility updates. These updates include a belt press replacement costing about $16,180 and PLC upgrades. Council member Kirk White asked if the PLC upgrades would improve cybersecurity. Blucher Pool data analyst Jill Miner confirmed. That's a good thing to take a look at. I think we all know the, the challenges that other utilities have seen with um, intrusions in their systems that have caused all sorts of catastrophic problems. We don't want to be the next one. And uh, when I see an, an opportunity like this where we're going to invest a lot of funds, I think it's good for us to to let the contractor know that this is a high priority for us and to get the latest uh, kinds of security systems. If it takes some extra, it's probably worth it. Council President Megan Parmenter addressed the multiple projects going on at Blucher Pool and requested a master plan. Capital Projects Manager Daniel Hudson said the plant is working on a five-year master plan. We have a lot of projects going on at a lot of different places, but what's like our master plan? Um, I think we just kind of like chip away at things, but I don't necessarily know like the, this is what we want to get done in five years or 10 years. It's just like well, a little bit at a time. Um, and so at some point it would be nice. I'd like to see like a master. This is our plan for each of our plants. The next Bloomington Utilities Service Board meeting will be held on February 12th at 5 p.m. The Ellettsville Town Council met on January 22nd to discuss a new initiative, Ordinance 2024-02, a plan for implementing a new e-commerce utilities platform to pay bills and transfer funds online. The utilities clerk asked me to prepare this ordinance to allow them to use what's called an e-commerce platform or online business platform for paying bills, um, doing direct deposits for payroll, and also uh, to process utility payments. And the town already has an ordinance in place that allows for ACH, automatic clearinghouse transactions, and a lot electronic funds transferred, and I just took that ordinance and tinkered with it and just added some language to make clear that it could also be used to 
change funds, transfer funds, do lateral transfers between accounts. It would allow um, utility payments to be processed and would allow the utilities clerk to use those services in addition to the town clerk treasurer. Council member William Ellis asked if the platform would allow residents to pay their utility bills online with their bank information. Deputy Clerk Noel Coiner responded affirmatively, saying that the platform would make it easier for customers to set up and track payments. The town is already paying for most of the services required for the platform. The additional cost right now, we would have to initially buy the machine, and Gary Brimley, who I'm working with at People State Bank, um, has said that the machine to rent it would be $30 a month, or we can buy it outright for $500, and that's the machine that would be able to actually run the checks for the utility payment side. And we already have business online set up. We've just not utilized the platform. So we've actually been paying for some of those services that we're just not utilizing. So the total figure I don't have exactly yet because we're going to pay on a what we actually use versus just the lump sum that we've been paying and not utilizing. The council ultimately decided to table Ordinance 2024-02 until their next meeting. Next, the council discussed approving the hiring of two new employees for the Department of Public Works. The first position, called Labor 1, is an existing position that needs to be filled. The second, Labor 2, is a new position without currently authorized funds budgeted towards its salary. Town manager Mike Farmer clarified that the first-year salary for Labor 2 was planned to be covered by the current DNR Next Level Trails grant. Farmer further explained that after the grant runs out, the recent increase in water rates is supposed to cover the salary for Labor 2 in the future. To the Labor 2 is a new position. Um, we've had it in the Next Level Trail grant uh, narrative from the beginning that we would hire two people um, to help uh, process that um, construction project. And so we also um, will be hiring a, another additional employee in the future. Um, it runs a dual path with um, the, water, the water rate increase, which we added. We were going to add two employees to that as well. So this is in the budget for both. The next level trail and the water rate. So we have the money for it. But to be, to be clear, Labor 2 is a new position. Farmer requested that the funds for Labor 2 be authorized by the clerk's office to proceed with the hiring process. The council approved the hire of Labor 1 and approved permission to hire Labor 2 while salary funding is pending authorization. The next Ellisville Town Council meeting will be held on February 5th. Up next, we have part two of the latest edition of Prescription for Healthcare, where we welcomed Dr. Michael Hicks, Distinguished Professor of Economics and Business Research and Director of the Center for Business and Economic Research at Ball State University. His work has appeared not only in scholarly sources, but also in such publications and media as Rolling Stone, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, MSNBC, NPR, and Fox Business News. Dr. Hicks joined us to discuss the impact of public schools on a community's economic development. 
We turn now to part two of an interview with Dr. Hicks on Civic Conversations, coming your way on the WFHB Local News. Let me ask you directly, let's suppose I'm a a business person and I'm trying to decide where to locate my business. Am I likely to worry about the expected population of educated workers? Absolutely. Um, And if you're more importantly, if you're a type of business that we really need in Indiana, which is one that is going to pay above average wages, it's going to have above average benefits, it's going to be more uh, less volatile it's going to be more uh, diversify our manufacturing intensive economy. Those businesses are solely interested in the availability of educated workers. So if you're going to bring a value-added manufacturing uh, agricultural firm, so somebody's going to take the squeak out of a pig or make tomatoes, educational attainment's not as important. They'll find people with uh, who are high school dropouts or high school graduates, and they can train them to work there. But we're talking about a very small number of, 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 of businesses like that that are likely to come to Indiana, where, we, we, where the growth would be in the one community that's really growing, which is central Indiana, uh, then that's going to be primarily businesses that cater to uh, college graduates or have um, primarily employ college graduates. Just important to know, we have good national data from 1992 to the present. 81% of all the net job growth has gone to people with a four-year degree or higher. The other 19% with people who have been to college or have an associate's degree. For the other two cohorts of Americans, college, high school graduates or less, there are fewer jobs now than they were 30 years ago. And, and so th- that reflects the changing demand for labor in the United States that really values higher education. So without, you know, without schools that are going to send people to college, prepare people to, for college and attract families who have been to college, um, communities are really at some risk of, of not growing. Okay. Let me provide a little bit of background for my next question. Um, I went to a three-room country grammar school in California. Thank you forever, Miss Koya, Miss Oya, for everything you did for me there, wherever you are. And my question then is, what's been happening lately to education in rural Indiana? So um, my father, who's your vintage, graduated from a two-room schoolhouse uh, in in Rome, Indiana as well. Um, Got a with 26 classmates, uh, I think two or three went off to get doctoral degrees or MDs. Um, in in rural Indiana, we've failed to see the sort of growing population that the urban parts of the state have seen. And in recent decades, it's been a slow decline. Um, and so for the most rural places, what that means is fewer students, more older folks uh, like me, uh, who were past their child raising years and a much smaller school corporation. So what does that do to a community? Well, uh, the overhead costs of running a school corporation or a school are pretty high. 
and a million dollars for a school corporation. And the cost of providing the most important instructional components, which are really the high school level, the STEM courses, the AP calculus, those sorts of things are, are very high. Um, the cost of having a teacher in an AP STEM class is probably twice of an early or an elementary school teacher just because of the extra certification, the extra cost of the facilities and the like. And so smaller schools in Indiana, uh, about 150 of them have corpor corporations that are under 2,000 students, have done a pretty poor job of providing that broad set of college prep classes. They send kids to college at a lower rate. There are 60 school corporations, about 20% in the state that offer no advanced placement STEM classes, which essentially means that those schools are telling uh, Ball State, IU, Purdue, IUPUI, Notre Dame, um, Indiana State, uh, USI, that they're not interested uh, in uh, sending kids to nursing programs, engineering programs, business programs, science, because all of those disciplines require pre-college prep in advanced placement, particularly calculus and the physical sciences. And so I think it's really time that those smaller school corporations wrestle with the fact that once you get to be too small and your growth prospects are, are negative for the next generation or two, that you're going to have to figure out some way of providing those college prep courses or nobody's going to move to your school corporation. And the kids that graduate there are not going to be ready for nursing programs or engineering programs or medical school. And so if you send them to college because you know, we have pretty good geographic representation at these state schools, their probability of being successful there is much lower. So it's time to sort of draw the, trace that line between course uh, secondary prep, pre-secondary prep or secondary prep, and the number of, you know, the nursing shortage that is ubiquitous across rural Indiana. So I think that's really part of the, the fundamental problem devolves back to education. Okay, let's circle back just a little bit. Let me ask you about Indiana's voucher program and how it's affected communities. Right, so the voucher program in Indiana uh, has gone through several iterations. Uh, it started off with um, during the Pence administration where you could only take a voucher if you were leaving, you'd already been enrolled in a, in a public school that had a fairly small effect. They'd expanded to students who were coming into a public, to a, a private school. So it got kids who might've gone to a parochial or private school anyway. Um, and then it's been expanded over the past few years to essentially virtually all families, uh, for family of four with $200,000 income is, is, has a voucher available for them. Um, and what that has done is, ironically, it has seen the decline in the overall suite of um, uh, school choice has caused a precipitous decline in private school enrollment. So it was about 12% of students back in 2000. That's about five or 6% of students, about 4% now have um, some sort of uh, voucher that's going to expand in the next few years. So what's happened when school choice came about is that there was an exodus of kids out of parochial or other private schools into adjacent uh, public traditional public schools. 
because with school choice, that was the big, the big choice has been not to go to a charter school, not to go to a private school, but to choose to go to an adjacent public school. That's been the, the single biggest use of school choice, other than the obvious one, which is household location decisions, which are uh, most heavily influenced by local public schools. So, so it hasn't been deleterious in the sense that uh, it's caused an exodus. The overall school choice has caused big migration to other local public schools, but there's still winners and losers there. So poor performing local public schools have lost students. High performing public schools have gained students. I see. Uh, let me ask you, do we have any hard data on the impact of fair school funding on the quality of life and even the potential for crime in a community? Right. So the the there's very good evidence uh, that has been uh, subject to repeated analysis for 30 or 40 years. My colleagues and I extended it down to the county level across the U.S. in a in a study that we did in 2019. And, and we are several iterations into it, that the single biggest factor on quality of life decisions for households, is the biggest predictor of quality of life is is the share of GDP spent on local schools, local mm. public schools. Wow. And so that, and, and it makes sense, right? Because the other micro studies that look, for example, at home prices uh, find that 30% of a home price is determined by the school corporation that it's in. So you take two identical homes, you put one in an A school, you put another one in an F school, that home, if it's a $100,000 home, the price would go at the national average, it would it could range by you know, $130,000 in the good school corporation, 70 in the four. And so it makes sense that the households are really valuing this when they locate there. And we're not the only people to find that. We, we extend it to local uh, it's a, uh, down at the county level. Other people have done micro studies of it. Other people have looked at metro areas. So that's the big driver of quality of life and attraction. And that's the big piece that Indiana misses. Indiana is pretty good at the infrastructure and working on parks. We had great park systems. We have, you know, a lot of local trail systems. We care. It's easy to start a business if you want to start a brewery to do things like that. What we really miss is the funding for for schools. Uh, we have school choice, which is valued. School choice is a valued part of quality of life for some families. They want options, even if they choose the local public school. The real challenge is that funding element is missing in a lot of Indiana places, which would be instrumental in improving outcomes. Um, there, it's a more tenuous link to crime, but remember, crime is uh, going to be crowded out by higher housing costs, also. So if you have a a place that schools are performing well, you tend not to have as much crime as well. But the causal mechanism of school funding to do that is is not as clearly identified. Okay, thanks. Sounds pretty solid to me. One final question. Uh, how does school funding affect communities of color? Right. So um, here in Indiana, uh, the we have... Uh, a couple, three school corporations that are heavily African-American. We have a dozen or so that have extraordinarily high Hispanic populations. But even in, 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 in what are often thought of as traditional urban schools, they're rarely majority African-American. So Muncie, for example, is uh, the state's taken over Muncie schools, given it to Ball State to manage. That's a 30 percent African-American school. It's still primarily a poor white school. 
Um, the, the funding formula flows to poverty, not to race. So if you're poor, you're going to get more money, whether it's in, 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 um, you know, Gary schools or Muncie schools, I will say that the one very clear outcome of school choice is that it's heavily used in the more less well-performing places. So Gary schools, 62% of students who reside within Gary Public School Corporation have taken school choice to go to private schools, charter schools that are not affiliated with the, their public school system or adjacent school corporations. Here in Muncie, it's about 42%. It's about a third of kids in Indianapolis schools. So school choice, has given students in those areas a lot more options than they had before 2000 when we didn't have school choice. Um, and that uh, presumably frees up additional revenues because those, those now those school corporations get the same amount of property tax dollars as they had beforehand, but it's just spread over a substantially smaller footprint of students. So it's not, there's not a clear answer about what it, what it, what it does here, but with the money going to students, following students, and then the money uh, sort of predicated on the poverty mix of that school corporation, there, there tends to be money following kids, even in, even if they're impoverished going from one school to another. Um, that That is really that equilibrating function of sending money to schools that it, it, it you know, it sort of does a, a, a pretty good job of following them. Again, I don't think we're spending enough on public education, but in terms of equalizing or having more money going to places that where the educational challenges are just harder because of poverty, I think Indiana does a better job than most states. Okay, well, Professor Hicks, thank you so much for a very informative conversation this afternoon. And to our radio audience, thanks for listening to us on Civic Conversations. This is Jim Allison of League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County. The League is a nonpartisan, grassroots, citizen-led organization that's fought since 1920 to improve our government and engage all citizens in the decisions that impact their lives. Becky, can you tell us something about next month's guest? Sure. We are really excited to welcome Kelly DeBecky and Karen Jepson Innes of the Wonder Lab. They're going to be here to talk about the importance of science education. So we're excited about that. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Dr. Hicks. Good to be with you. And now it's time for Dark Past, Bright Future, a segment produced by Bring It On's Liz Mitchell, featuring accounts of Black history that often go overlooked. Today, Mitchell presents a brief history of Madam C.J. Walker's triumph over adversity to become the first black woman millionaire in America. We turn to Liz Mitchell for more. Welcome to Dark Past, Bright Future. Lessons in African-American history that you won't read about in any textbook. Telling the stories of the struggle of those who came before us to build a better path to a brighter future for all of us. I am a woman that came from the cotton fields of the South. I was promoted from there to the wash tub. 
Then I was promoted to the cook kitchen. And from there, I promoted myself into the business of manufacturing hair goods and preparations. Everybody told me that I was making a big mistake by going into this business, but I know how to grow hair as well as I know how to grow cotton. Madam C.J. Walker. With little or no opportunity when Sarah Breedlove started out in life, she became the first female self-made millionaire in America. Sarah Breedlove was the one and only incomparable Madam C.J. Walker. Who would imagine that a person born in 1867 lost both parents by the age of seven, married three times, the first time being at age 14, gave birth to a daughter, became a widow at age 20, remarries, divorces, then marries Charles Joseph Walker, divorces again, and she is a black woman with only three months of formal education. Now, how do you attain success with that? Here are three quotes from Madam Walker that might give you an insight. I gave myself a start by giving myself a start. I'm not ashamed of my past. I'm not ashamed of my humble beginning. If I have accomplished anything in life, it is because I have been willing to work hard, in quotes. Sarah suffered from severe dandruff and other scalp ailments, including baldness. When she developed a formula to help her own condition, she knew she was onto something that would change the way black women groomed and styled their hair. She marketed herself as Madam C.J. Walker, independent hairdresser and retailer of cosmetic creams. Sarah started out selling her products door to door. She opened a beauty salon. Then she established training programs in the Walker system that would allow black women economic independence. She set up a national network of licensed sales agents who earn healthy commissions. In 1910, Walker relocated her business to Indianapolis, Indiana, where she built a factory, hair salon, beauty school, and a laboratory to help with the research. She included in that building a movie theater. Many of her employees, including those in key management positions, were women. During the height of her career, Walker and her company employed several thousand women as sales agents. Walker began organizing her sales agents into state and local clubs. She had annual conferences and would give prizes to women who had sold the most products. Now, what company does that sound like today? If you guessed Mary Kay, you are correct. Thus making Madam C.J. Walker's strategy for success still effective today. On a personal note, Madam Walker provided opportunity for black children to have a place to see movies. One of those children was me. I was born and raised in Indianapolis during an era when the words no, don't, you can't, whites only, and Negroes served in the back were prevalent. We would have not have gotten the opportunity to experience viewing movies if it had not been for the Walker Theater. As a child, being inside that majestic theater with its rare African death row styling, featuring African shields and spears, this provided me with a place to escape from the oppressive world that I lived in. The Walker Building is one of the few structures left of what was known as the Harlem of Indianapolis.
It was surrounded by black neighborhoods spanning over 400 acres on the Northwest side of Indianapolis, which is now IUPUI. Madam C.J. Walker, entrepreneur, philanthropist, political and social activist, gave one of the largest donations to the NAACP anti-lynching fund. She also contributed large amounts of funds to many other organizations. And on another note, just this week at Indianapolis International Airport, they unveiled a 72 foot long mural to honor Madam C.J. Walker. Thank you and this concludes this segment of Dark Past, Bright Future. You've been listening to Dark Paths, Bright Future, exploring the many different shades of African-American history because the true history of our people is more complex than black and white. In the words of the Negro National Hymn, sing a song full of the hope that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun of our new day begun, let us march on till victory is won. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. 